0: And even if you go to the World Health Organization website, and this was seven years ago, it says on the cancer page in the first sentence that 90 to 95% of cancers are caused by diet, lifestyle, and smoking. And so, I was like, there's a huge disconnect here because if that is in the first sentence on the cancer page, why in the hospital do doctors not, one, know anything about diet or lifestyle, or two, advise on changing them?
1: Do you want to wake up feeling like you're stepping into who you're meant to be, into the best possible version of you? What if I told you that the key to your best life, health, and happiness are all around you? You just have to find what works for you. I'm Hope Pedraza, and I believe that there isn't just one way to live a healthy and meaningful life, and that all you need is a little inspiration to make changes that last from the inside out. Each week, I'll be sharing tangible tips and inspirational interviews to help you on your journey. These are the steps to take to improve your life and live with purpose. This is Hopeful and Wholesome. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to Hopeful and Wholesome. Today
2: on the show, I have Maddie Lansdowne. Now, Maddie is a scientist. He's a nutritionist. He's a nutrition coach. And he helps people take control of their health and make empowered decisions about their health. So he is a scientist and he has studied and researched all the things to help teach people how to use food as medicine and optimize their energy and lose the weight that they want. And today we are talking all things sciency about why we make the decisions that we do. We talk about genetics and genetic expression, how we can use our brains to make real changes in our health and break patterns that we might be stuck in. So we are getting super sciencey, and I love it. So let's jump in. Okay, y'all, let's jump in. I am here with Maddie Lansdowne, and he is a nutritionist and a health coach, and we are talking all things health and science because he has such an extensive science background. So I'm really excited to kind of dive into some more science behind nutrition and weight loss. So thanks so much for joining me today, Maddie.
0: Thanks, Hope. I appreciate you inviting me on the show.
2: For sure. And it's Maddie got up super early for us today because he's on the other side of the world (laughs) in Australia. So thanks for that.
0: You are welcome.
2: Yeah. Okay, so I usually like to save the like background and stuff until later on in the conversation, but I feel like we have to touch on kind of your, I guess, your background and your journey as a scientist and a health coach. Can, so, can you talk a little bit about that? And that'll kind of lead me into all the things that we get to talk about today.
0: Yeah, not a problem. So, I guess, yeah, I grew up with my mom as a nurse and going to the hospital. I was in a small enough town that I used to go to the hospital instead of daycare with mom. Mm-hmm. And so I had this real, you know appreciation admiration for medicine and the hospital and my mom and and stuff like that and then i i grew up obviously into a young adult and i moved to the city for my study and research where i became a scientist and i was very much like a very passionate house of medicine type person medicine is the best thing that humans have ever created because if it's not why does it exist and like that was before i truly understood capitalism and anyway I'm in the hospital for, you know, sort of six to seven years working. Well, I've worked in a number of industries, but when I got to the hospital, I was there for about seven years in cancer research. And I realized very abruptly that basically the system doesn't work to help people. It just help, works to keep people on medication for the most part. And even though every doctor I've ever met is well intentioned and wants to help people, unfortunately, they're a part of an extremely broken system. And sort of when I realized, that nobody's looking for the cause of disease, and I'm a very social person, so I knew every one of the laboratories in the cancer hospital that I worked, and not a single person was ever working on cure. Everyone's always working on disease and drug management because that's the thing that perpetually makes big pharma money right. and even if you go to the World Health Organization website and this was you know seven years ago, it says on the cancer page in the first sentence that ninety to ninety five percent of cancers are caused by diet, lifestyle, and smoking. And so, I was like, there's a huge disconnect here because if that is in the first sentence on the cancer page, why in the hospital do doctors not, one, know anything about diet or lifestyle, yeah. or two, advise on changing them? And so, right. for me, this just got me really angry. Like A lot of people get into the health coach space or the nutrition space because the, the system failed them and they had to seek their own solutions. For me, I had a partner that went through that. Through my twenties, and so that was part of it as well, watching her journey and you know detoxing from the drugs that she had used to manage her own symptoms of different things um, and she 's you know amazingly healthy now she 's finally out of western medicine, and so yeah, I just got really angry and I was like, people should know and so even when I was at the hospital, I was in this sort of moral conflict or this ethical conflict because. During the day, I'd be working on clinical trials for leukemia or um, lymphoma, or and looking for biomarkers and, and genetic research. And then at night, I'd be holding seminars on how ginger is ten thousand times more effective than um, a conventional cancer drug called Taxol at killing cancer cells. Yeah. And so <laughs> I did that kind of double, you know, double um, personality right. kind of double life thing for a couple of years. And yeah, eventually got into nutrition and health coaching because once I realized that fundamentally most of the people in any hospital are overweight and now being overweight and obese is the number one precursor to virtually all disease and they're diseases of privilege because we overeat ourselves right. into them, right? Yeah. And so it's, it's mainly a thing of the, the Western world. However, food's so cheap that we often feed second and third world countries with the same terrible stuff. So even in countries where people are mal- exceptionally malnourished, they can still be very overweight because of right. the food we're giving them. So, there, I went basically, okay, they've got disease. What's the next step? How do they get that? Okay, they're overweight. And then it was like, okay, so we need to talk about their nutrition. And then I did that for a couple of years and realized that I never actually met a single person that didn't know food, like, you know, vegetables, meat, nuts, seeds were pretty good. Like everybody knew. Everybody knew that was like a relatively healthy diet. So, I was like, why aren't you doing it? And that's where I work really now is transformational behavior change. With the nutrition, of course, but it's that bit. It's not the what do I eat? It's why don't I eat it? So that's how I got here. (laughs)
2: Yeah. No, I love that. Well, and I think that is the missing piece, right? I think like, actually, I just had a conversation literally yesterday. Somebody came into my studio and she was asking about classes. And then she's like, you know, I've gained all this weight. And I was telling her like, oh, yeah, I'm a nutritionist, blah, blah. Well, I mean, I know what to eat. I just don't eat it. And it's like, everybody's Mm -hmm. like, they know what to eat. They know what's healthy. They just don't to eat it. So mm-hmm. I guess my, that leads me to what I kind of wanted to talk about today. And I guess what are some like initial, I guess, I don't know what, I, I guess, protocol for people to kind of shift that into like the more psychological piece of that. Like I know what to eat. How do I tell mm-hmm. myself I need to eat it?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. So the first place that I start with clients, with anyone, whenever you want to make change, you need to know what you're changing. Because a lot of people unconsciously eat, we go we're, you know we're so busy. like the Western life, the whole world really, is just so busy, perpetuated by social media and all of these apps that are designed to make you feel like you're missing out. So you, your behavior is literally addicted to them. You have dopamine addiction, and that's a part of this conversation as well. But the idea is if you don't know what you're doing, forcing yourself to do something different is going to be really difficult. That's why when people do a fad diet, it's like willpower, willpower, willpower. And as soon as it's over, they're like, oh, finally, I can be my old self again. Right. Because to our nervous system, when we behave differently, the nervous system kind of freaks out a little bit. Because, and I'd like to describe it as every time there's a decision to be made, whether you make it automatically or not, your brain is essentially deciding between a perfectly paved highway, like a five-lane highway that's the safest thing that you can ever walk on to the left. And then it's like being different is on the right which is like a tightrope over like a river that's got crocodiles in it or alligators in it and it's like really scary and so the nervous system of course especially when you're tired you're stressed you're hungry you're always going to go with the old you because it's way safer it's familiar your nervous system isn't confused and the problem with fad diet culture is it says change all the variables at the same time which is essentially like spend the next 8 to 12 weeks just dangling above this river of alligators. And that's, nobody feels good there, right? As yeah. soon as it's over and nobody's watching, you're like, I'm going back to the highway. Yeah. So you need to know firstly, what is going on like before you change it? Like what, what happens on the highway? When you take the highway every time, what happens over there? And then you need to document what's going on, how you feel, the kinds of foods you might eat in that, in that time. Because once you know what happens, then we can work on changing it because we know the core driving factor. And the core driving factor might be stress, sleep, emotions. And the, what I do in week one of my program um, is I have calibration week and we track food and emotions. Mm. And so many people are like, whoa, I didn't even realize that mm. I ate when I felt this way stressed, tired, angry, self sabotaging, you know, whatever it is. So once you know that bit, then we can start to make change. And we can't change all the things all at once either. It's not like, you know, go and buy 400 kilos of kale and never look at chocolate ever again kind of <laughs> that you know the extreme restrictive yes. thinking yes. because we've all also got a teenager in us we've also got a little child in us and when you try and parent that teenager that teenager is going to say hey don't tell me what to do i'm right. in control here right. and we will rebel right so we have to create this framework that is supportive of progress and doesn't require willpower because willpower is a finite resource, but developing self-love or self-respect is infinite.
2: Right. Yeah. I love that. So, I also want to ask because I know you've studied like epigenetics and how all of that plays into your health. And so, Mm -hmm. I know I get this conversation a lot too, where people feel like constrained by their family history, right? And the health Mm -hmm. history of their mom and their dad, their grandparents or whatever. And they just think that's like their death sentence, right? Like I'm just restricted totally. to this and this is how I'm going to end up with this and this and this because that's what family mm-hmm. has. So can you speak to that too in what epigenetics is and then how that affects our health and maybe not affects our health?
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the, I guess the house of medicine taught for a very long time. And I mean, we can't blame it all the time because we've, we were always learning new things. But for a long time, we, they discovered genetics and they were like, whoa, this is the blueprint for how everything happens. And then they spent over $1 billion to do the genome project where they sequenced the human genome, which is crazy now because it's like 500 bucks to do that for anyone. <laughs> yeah. um, but the first time they did it was a $1 billion <laughs> in a multiple-year project. But what they learned, they expected to find the keys to everything, basically. Mm-hmm. Every disease, every, every solution, every problem explained. Because the belief was for, you know, fifty or sixty or a hundred years that this was the blueprint of how humans function. And so they did it and then not much really changed because we then realized and many doctors knew this before, and many professors knew this before, and were actually and there's a famous guy, Professor Bruce Bruce Lipton. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you've heard of him, like but he mm-hmm. Yeah, he he actually in the seventies or maybe it was the late sixties, started talking about epigenetics. And he, was, he lost his tenure at a university wow. because the idea of gen- epigenetics was so extreme and That's hippie crazy. and woo-woo yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah, they kicked him out That's like of nuts. his tenure. Crazy. Now it's like the most accepted thing you know, that we have. But the idea is that genetics is the blueprint and epigenetics is the way in which we interact with that blueprint because not every gene has a function, not every gene is switched on, not every gene is switched off. And it depends on the food that we put into our body, the stress that we experience, the thoughts that we think. I mean, that might sound a little esoteric, but the thoughts that we think are just chemical impulses with, you know, molecular equations that are happening every time we think and feel. And so, yeah, the kinds of environments that we create for the genetics then end up dictating which genes are switched on, which are switched off. So for instance, like we all have the same genes for skin color, right? And the same for eye color. But the, the color that is expressed right. is the color that we present to the world with. And this is if, you, if we go into it, there's like genotype and phenotype. Mm-hmm. So, genotype in sort of genetic talk is I have the genes for, you know, and, and it might be talking about family history. It's like we have diabetes propensity in our family. Like, we, right. you know, we've got the genotype. But if you never have a high sugar diet and you never... Put those genes into play, the phenotype is never expressed, Mm -hmm. right? The physical presentation of that is never expressed. The same for every disease. There is a very small proportion of people that are born with those genes switched on, and it's really unfortunate and that's devastating, but it is a tiny amount of people. And as I said before, for cancer, 90 to 95% is diet and lifestyle. So they even say on that exact same page that it's about 5 to 7% of cancers that can be attributed to uh, genetics it's a tiny proportion and now it's one in two people have cancer so so yeah the difference is with genetics yes you might have the information but in there like encoded in there for any insert any disease or illness or problem but you actually uh, have the capacity to choose whether you turn that on or you don't whether yeah food lifestyle all of the you know regular sleep is a big one and obviously we don't want to switch those things on because (laughs) it's unideal the good thing to know though is if we have lived unhealthy lives for periods of time, that for the most part, we can wind that back and then go back and switch it off by turning our life around.
2: That was going to be my next question. So for people who are like, I'm on past the point of no return. Like, is it possible (laughs) to like switch those off?
0: Mm, For sure. Absolutely. And we see people cure their cancer and cure their diabetes and cure all sorts of things every single day. Now, if they didn't have the genes that made that disease possible, then... It doesn't matter if we, you know, had, were predisposed to it or not. We lived a life that turned them on. Right. Like so, even if, like in 2020 or 2021, basically everybody is signing up for a disease. It's right. irrelevant of family history. Like our ancestors weren't so sick that you know every human on the earth has a disease now. Mm. It's the lifestyle that we've created, the right. food we put in. So so everybody's got the genes in there to make these diseases possible. So that sort of genetic thinking i think is really limited and it's a bit outdated but a lot of people might not know this hence right. hence we're having the conversation right, right. so totally. yeah you have far more control over your health outcomes than you might think
2: yeah and i think that's the frustrating part with you know i guess one of the many frustrating parts like you're mentioning mm-hmm. about western medicine because i mean i've had that experience with people like my husband and people in my family where it's like they go to the doctor and Their cholesterol measures high. Like, ask about your family history. Oh, well, your mom and dad have it. So you should just start taking this medicine now because Mm -hmm. you're just gonna end up with it anyway. Like, or how about we address some like dietary things and then maybe we can address it that way before just throwing the medicine at it when it's not even in the range that it you know, like it's just it's mind blowing to me that that's just like first response, like, oh, it's in your family history. So basically you're screwed, you know.
0: The other thing to remember, especially with cholesterol. Is that, yeah, unfortunately, as much as all the doctors we met are mostly good people, unfortunately, it's a capitalist and the most successful capitalist business to have existed in the last 100 and 150 years. And that because of what they've built, you know, there's so many sick people, they've got so many solutions. Arguably, they create the problem and the solution with big food and big agriculture. And they're significant portions of our economy. So, you know, you, you can't all of us you know the likes of you and I hope are out there screaming healthy food and doing all these things, but if you think about it from a macroeconomic standpoint, if the whole world just went healthy, there would be like financial crises in every single country across right. the globe so yeah. even though what we're saying is probably more correct than what they're saying, it actually it's going to take a long time to change right. that system, so right. economically the whole system still works, and the right. you know families get paid and stuff right. like that but even with statins, like statins have made $1 trillion since they were created. And okay. there was an Australian doctor who um, ended up um, having a gag order put on her because she did a, a, a two part documentary series here in Australia, but she used a lot of American doctors in it talking about statins. And when the statins, the measurement for low, medium, high, you know, very high status was changed in the early 2000s. There was 8 of the 9 people on the board that reviewed the science data to reduce that into a smaller window were paid by statin companies. And so, yeah, of course they're lowering these right. windows. And as well remember that for the listeners of course that you know, a lot of these things are not cause-based medicine. Right. Having high or low cholesterol could be the most meaningless thing right. you hear exactly. in your health journey exactly. ever. It's right. like why is that the case? Your your liver makes 80% of your Cholesterol, anyway. Mm-hmm. If you reduce it in the diet, mm-hmm. the liver's going to increase it, and vice versa. And you need cholesterol to convert vitamin D in your skin. Vitamin D is, you know, one of the most important features of every illness and disease. Vitamin D deficiency. So, yeah, I would just ask people to ask their doctors if they're given a, oh, you've got this result. Mm-hmm. Be like, why do I have that right. result, right. and what does that result mean? Right. Um, and if they can't answer, go and find somebody who can.
2: Right. Totally. Yeah. No. Absolutely. And I think I really i am now interested in that documentary you're talking about because that sounds...
0: It's so good.
2: <laughs> that's crazy. Well, and I think... Yeah, I think that's the place we're at now. And I guess that leads me to a question I want to ask you because I've had this... I like having this conversation with people like you because I feel like everybody has a different take on it because I agree with the point that it's like we've built this industry up that it's like what is the financial implications of taking down this industry kind of thing? Yeah. But then it's like, okay, well then what's the solution? Like at what point, Mm -hmm. like I had a friend who posted this the other day on Facebook where she was saying like, why is alternative medicine called alternative medicine when it was what was created first? Like, yeah, totally. So it's like, so what's the solution when it's like all of these alternative methods have been around for thousands of years, you know, like how do we, Right,
0: the wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know- that, that's a great question, and and I think as well, like strategic branding was done by the industry in calling things alternative and giving it that negative kind of right. connotation as to it, alternative being risky and yeah. different, and you know, like, and that, I think that was a strategic move to do that because, like you said, traditional Chinese medicine, ten thousand years, like, and and I've I refer so many people to Chinese medicine doctors that have you know, had 10 years of failure with Western medicine and they solve problems in three months. Yep. You know, it's, it's insane whether or naturopathy um, or Ayurveda and Australian Aboriginal medicine here in Australia has been around for 40,000 years. Mm-hmm. Like, it's insane. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a bit of strategic branding in there. But mm-hmm. I think in a capitalist society, because the reality is most of us are capitalists. We want money to be able to pay for things. And that's the world we live in. We kind of have to play the game and and the strongest vote for a world that you want to create or be a part of in a capitalist society is one with your dollar. So it's about paying for services that are no longer uh, you know are not western medicine or are not drugs and and maybe spend your money with a naturopath or a nutritionist and buy some herbs and supplements and or even a psychologist like I mean I know that's kind of part of western medicine but I think it's an extremely useful part. So and, and uh, yeah I guess I should say that too is that Western medicine has its place. Mm-hmm. It's just got a monopoly, a right. financial monopoly on the market. Like, don't give me herbs if I'm in a car accident. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> That's not going to be helpful. Right,
2: right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, if I broke my leg and I need you to put it back together, like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to need some, something to knock me out.
0: <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah, I think people should vote with their dollar. Yeah. And, and the same with the food industry because big agriculture and you know there's the whole conversation about sort of farming and conventional tilling and the foods that are controlled by the drug, the, so the drug companies, well, they actually come from the drug, drug companies, but the pesticides and fertilizer industry and have farmers sign up and they have to use their seeds, which are chemically and genetically modified in this particular way. So you've got to use your dollar to vote on either end of the spectrum. It's like, I'm going to buy my food from a farmer's market. I'm going to talk to the farmer and get to know how his, you know, he practices. And then on the other end, because the, the food and the, nutri- the poor nutrition is creating the disease. And on the other end, it's like, I'm going to solve my health problems by giving my money to a nutritionist or a psychologist or, a you know, insert alternative (laughs) Mm -hmm. practitioner.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think like you're saying, it's the clever marketing that makes it tough because people are afraid to put their trust in alternative methods because Mm -hmm. it does sound a certain way, you know, it's not mainstream. So yeah, that makes it tough. And you mentioned psychology because I wanted to ask you about that too. Because while well, psychology is, I guess, like you said, technically Western medicine, but I think like focusing on mental health has just recently kind of become more like people are realizing that this is part of like health, mm-hmm. like as a whole. Totally. Um, and so, what is the connection? Because I know you obviously deal a lot with this with, in your program with your clients that you work with. But what is the connection or the relationship between the thoughts that we think? and mm-hmm. in our health?
0: That's a great question. So, the th- I guess the Western medicine has also done a really good job over the last however long of disconnecting mind and body. And to the point now that we have a culture of people that sometimes don't identify with the body that they were given. And so, in my belief system the mind is the body Mm -hmm. because the mind is in it. It's it's, (laughs) it's a physical part of the body, right? Right. And whether, you know, lots of people debate on where consciousness is. Some people say it's in every cell and it's just the collection of cells that we have that makes it so powerful. Some people say it's in the brain. So, the the point is though, in my mind, the mind is the body. So, the the fuel that you put into the the body is inevitably affecting the mind or infecting the mind because you're degrading it. For instance, vegetable oils, and that's another kind of alternative branding marketing term in the same realm is that you know in the 70s they sat around a table and businessmen agreed to call it vegetable oils when they're actually <laughs> nut and seed oils to convince everyone that they were healthy it uh, and people still think they're healthy but yes. but vegetable oils are super destructive to the central nervous system and the brain and so if they're the highways that your thoughts and feelings are running along all the time and they're degraded and there's potholes everywhere and sometimes the neuron just ends, or like we can't jump across to the next neuron, then that creates instability in your thoughts, in your belief systems, in the way, your self-security. So that's kind of the more of the physical. But when we think about the emotional, if we've got past trauma or we're holding on to in, in relationships that are ambivalent or confusing, we hold this tension in our body and and everybody knows what it feels like whether you're able to let go of it or you've had it there for years where you just feel this tightness or this underlying anger or this underlying frustration. And the way that that translates into not being helpful for our body is that it's a stress response. And so we're allowing our body to experience stress perpetually ongoing for a long period of time. And I know a big thing for the women that I work with is often belly fat. right? And so one of the things with belly fat, you can eat and ha- sleep and do all the perfect things. But if you haven't managed your stress, what happens is that when you have a stress response, your body unlocks sugar stores essentially because it needs fast energy. Because traditionally, our genetics have got us wired that when we have a stress response, it usually means we need to fight a bear mm-hmm. or run away from a tiger because it's going to mm-hmm. kill us. Mm-hmm. But most of us are sitting static at our desk chair, on our couch or just standing in the kitchen when all of these stressful events happen. So, we unlock all of these sugar stores in an instant because cortisol and adrenaline goes up and then we don't spend the energy and it ends up being put on our stomach. And it's like that little, especially as you get into perimenopause and menopause, a lot of women have that little pouch, that little fat pouch on the front of their stomach. And that's usually because of years of stress, just unlocking sugar stores and them not being burnt up. So, it puts it there. Same with men. That's why men have such solid Big beer bellies because men are even worse at letting their stress out. I, like I'm jealous of women crying so you know as often as they do because <laughs> they get out. <laughs> get tension out. Yes, like it's so it's so beneficial. So yeah, it, there's a physical in the sense that you know poor diets degrade our neurons and our nervous system, which is where our thoughts and beliefs and psychology spends its time. And then there's also the fact that yeah, those beliefs that we hold and the thoughts that we think and the relationships we have and the things that we think we deserve or the, the situations in our life that we create for ourselves can produce stress responses which interrupt all metabolic processes.
2: So, what are some steps, I guess, to I guess, pay a t- more attention to the thoughts that we think and how because all of these things, obviously, like is this cascade effect of things, right? Yeah. So, what are some things, I guess, some ways that we can pay more attention to the thoughts that we think and, I guess, stopping that progression?
0: Yeah, that's awesome. So, basically it's the, it's the same kind of thing as before, figuring out what is the thought that you're having because a lot of these things are so automated. Like, and the brain literally does that. And the perfect example for automation of behavior is thinking, do you remember learning to drive a manual car? Like in the beginning it was like foot in the pedal, look over there, move the gear stick. Oh my god, there's so many mirrors. Where are all the cars? You know, it was like such is such a clunky so many parts. And then now we can drive like 200 kilometers or 100 miles and be like, oh, I never remember driving. Exactly. Like- <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah,
2: exactly.
0: So our, our brain does that because it wants to conserve energy. Like, and so it's like, how can we make this automated and as fast as possible? And so it does that with our behavior and our emotions and emotional eating. It automates these processes. So we need to bring the unconscious back into the conscious. So step one is to just start observing yourself. Like cat, when you're at the pantry being like, oh, I just... What's going on here? Why am I here? How did I get like, here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How did I get here? Or, and, and in the beginning, a lot of people will catch themselves afterwards. Yes. Look, and then slowly, will, the awareness will creep back into the process all the way back to the start. Yeah. Um, so it takes a couple of weeks to get used to it. But in the beginning, you'll be like, oh, no, I just did the thing. Damn it. Like, <laughs> yep, and then the next yep. time, you'll catch yourself in the middle of it. Right. And you'll be like, oh, no, it's happening. And then eventually, you'll be able to see, oh... I've felt this trigger happen and this is what usually unfolds from here. Yeah. And then at that point, then we can start pattern interrupting. But until we have the awareness and knowledge of what is happening and why it's happening, we can't change it. Um, And from there, we obviously try some alternative things. And the idea too is to understand, once you understand the function of the old behaviors or the behaviors that you wish to change, you have to find an alternative that is of, equal or greater emotional reward because if you don't you will feel deficient afterwards the brain is always seeking this reward and we have a reward system which essentially keeps us alive and that's the thing that social media apps and sugar companies hijack the dopamine pathway so we have to kind of retrain it back into you know sort of more long-term goals and this and this takes time because we're so used to like getting a message every 3 seconds on okay. some platform but yeah in the beginning It's, yeah, just getting aware. First step is to get aware of what's going on, understand why it's going on, and then find something of equal or greater value to swap it out with. So, and for instance, if you go from, you know, eating a packet of or eating a block of chocolate, and then the alternative is just having a glass of water, it's unlikely that that glass of water is going to fulfill the requirements of that experience which your nervous system is seeking. But it's not about just getting healthier chocolate. Like it's about finding an activity or a group of activities that satisfy you in the same way. Right. And, it, and there can be one minute answers. There can be an hour answers. Could mm-hmm. be have a bath. Mm-hmm. Could be go for a walk. And there, there is obviously food swap outs as well that people yeah. can do. Because basically, I, I'm of the belief for the most, most part that like if we're talking in context of food, I mean there's plenty of behaviors that need to change outside of food as well. But in food, a snack is always an emotional thing. Mm-hmm. It's procrastination. It's avoidance. It's boredom. It's like if we're eating correctly, snacks are really not necessary if we're eating properly. Um, And many of us are not, of course. So that begs the question, though, is emotional eating always bad? And that's another whole conversation to unpack and and dig into. But I think, yeah, in the beginning, most of us need to at least scale back our emotional eating and our responses to food in that way by a lot.
2: (laughs) Yes. Well, and I think I actually just had an interview last week about this and she is like an intuitive eating like expert. We were talking mm-hmm. about that, too, like the good and the bad side of emotional eating. But then I yep. think, too, like we were talking about, I think self-awareness like gets you far. Because yes. I think like you're totally. saying, I mean, it's just becoming aware of like, oh wait, I just went to the pantry and got this thing. And it's like just like yeah. building that self-awareness around like what you're doing and why you're doing it and all of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and as well, committing to the fact that it will take time. Right. And not beating yourself up because I think a lot of people get stuck. You know, We've been sold this diet culture for so many decades of like, if you don't go hard, if you're not amazing, you don't have a bikini body in 12 weeks, then you're a worthless human. Yeah, you know? yeah totally. Um and, and it's just so toxic. And, and yeah. even when you know, we try and get people to, to do it slowly, which is what I do in my program, we call it one tweak a week. Like, we, like we focus on a small change mm-hmm. and even if that tweak takes 3 weeks to nail, we're going to take 3 weeks yeah. because we need to build this house with strong foundations. Right. But if we're, you know, and it's really hard for people to not slip into that all or nothing, you know, mm-hmm. everything yeah. or nothing. Yeah. I failed or I'm doing well, you know, right. I'm on the bandwagon or I'm off. And, and that binary thinking of yes or no, like it's a light switch is unfavorable to progression in every way. Right. Right, uh, unless we're talking you know who won football because right. that <laughs> at the end of the game, the binary number is the important bit, but outside of that with the human body and the human mind, it needs nurture, love, support, flexibility, and you know having and i i call i call unideal food mood food because you can have a positive mood yeah. and eat you know it could be a birthday, you have yeah. some cake right. it, it could be a negative experience, and so again we say good or bad food that's really binary thinking and and it confuses the nervous system again because it's like oh i'm at a my child's birthday who i love having cake Mm -hmm. so is that good or bad right right so it's it really confuses the nervous system so i think using nurturing and flexible language like mood food or uh, fuel food or this is you know depending on the situation and the words you use but i think that yeah improving the language around these events and these situations is better because it reduces the amount of judgment and therefore it reduces the amount of diet culture mentality of i failed or i haven't failed or it's all about the reflection in the mirror and not how i feel and yeah. and, and those types of things
2: yeah no totally that's no that's really good advice and i think that's it's unfortunate the way that diet culture has totally like warped our sense of like self worth mm. and like you know like Yeah, it's it especially for women, and I mean men have it too. It's it's like it's so brutal for women. It's like we were talking last week. Like, there's no such thing as a mom bot. Like dad bot is a thing, but there's no such (laughs) thing as a mom bot. Like mom, women are expected to be like you're saying, like the bikini, whatever, and jump back to your pre baby weight and all this stuff. It's like like there's no mercy. There's no like compassion or yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah,
0: yeah, and we should be totally normalizing, especially post birth bodies. You know. And, I mean, then it gets into the sticky conversation of body positivity, which is like, you know, is obesity worth celebrating? I don't think so. Um, However, there's a space in there where, and particularly for women, like their bodies are all so different. Your bodies are all like, there's curves in different places. There's different shapes and heights. And whereas men are a little more conventional um, and the same across the board or similar across the board. But, yeah, and everyone trying to fit into this same cookie cutter you know, this is what's on the magazine. Right. This is what's on Instagram. Yeah. You know, is, totally. it's just so toxic. So yeah. yeah, there's a place for love and self-acceptance yeah. for everybody in there. But the industry, well, that doesn't make money, does it?
2: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bottom line. Yeah, exactly. So what do you think? I like to give people a few tangible things to like mm-hmm. leave with here. So what would you say? I know like it's hard to kind of narrow down the list because it's this is such a broad question. But yeah. people are kind of looking towards like moving to better health. What do you think are the like most important things that they should take action on, like when they're getting started?
0: First thing would be to commit to some kind of routine and a routine that is about the person that you want to build. And so it literally might be just starting the day with a glass of water, like something that you can anchor this new personality or develop these new behaviors around. So the first thing, yeah, and that's something I get people to do is like the night before, glass of water goes on the bedside. And it's like a trigger or an anchor for like, oh, this is how this person behaves when I start the day like this. So that's where I would start because if we want to make change, we need to attach it to something. Right. Otherwise, we're just kind of going around a roundabout just constantly. So I'd start there. And then second to that, one of the easiest things to work on is water intake. Like Most people have significantly low water intake compared to what they should have. And like a lot of people have... I always share this and it blows people's minds, which is, that the last place in the body to get hydration is spinal fluid because of the way that it needs to get there through multiple sort of osmosis and concentration gradients. And so, a lot of people have back issues. A lot of people have had sore backs and discs. And it's like, oh, well, a lot of that could be relieved if we just hydrated those cells and topped up the spinal fluid. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's obviously a very complex process. But the idea is that most people's Spinal fluid hasn't been topped up in decades because right. right. they haven't had enough water. So there's a lot that can change there. Oh. Uh, so, first things are routine. Second things, water intake. And then from there, it would be change one meal at a time for nutrition. Don't go all the meals all the time. Literally just pick breakfast and be like, I'm going to do breakfast differently this week or dinner or insert whichever thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously, you might need some guidance on that because if you finish your dinner and you're not, you're still hungry or you're right. looking for sugar. You know, Because there's the other side of intuitive eating is that if your microbiome and behaviors are set up to intuitively love chocolate and pizza, that's not hugely helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so start with one meal at a time. That's that one tweak a week mentality. Yeah. It's just small things until it's normal, then move to the next thing.
2: Yeah, that's good. That, those are perfect. Those are great. Super easy and simple follow up. I like it. So I have one more question I'd like to ask everybody. But before you leave, where can people find more about you and what you're doing?
0: Sure. So I have a podcast as well, which is cool. It's called How to Not Get Sick and Die. And very soon, hope you will be on there, which is exciting. So yeah, just any podcast app to find that. And then from there, I have a Facebook group for Busy mums. It's called the Busy Mums Collective. So if you're wanting to get healthy, reclaim your health and self-confidence, then that's the place to hang out.
2: Perfect. And I know lots of busy moms listen to this. So that's exciting. <laughs> that's great. So, the question I always like to leave on is, what do you think is the most important thing you can do to live with purpose?
0: Oh, that's such a good question. To live with purpose. I think the first thing is back to that awareness piece is like spending time in silence by yourself, maybe journaling to figure out what your truth is to know. Yeah, like a lot of people get caught up in the hecticness of life. And it's like 10, 20 years later, they're like, oh. I divorced my husband and I feel amazing, or, you know, I did thing and I realized I've been living in an alternate universe for a couple of decades. So I think, yeah, getting clear on who you are and, and what you want is really, really important. And if you can't locate what you want, start trying things because, yeah, otherwise you're just wasting time. So, yeah, I think spending time on the awareness piece is one of the most important things you can find to be able to live on purpose
2: love that yeah that's perfect i cannot agree more (laughs) (laughs) amazing yeah thanks so much for all of this This is like super relevant and insightful and everything so thanks so much for all of your insight and everything this was awesome
0: thanks for having me on the show and i can't wait to get you on my show
1: (laughs) i know me too it'll be fun thanks so much see ya thanks for listening to hopeful and wholesome y'all if you found value in this week's episode please subscribe on itunes wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review to let me know what you thought I'd love to know what you find useful in these episodes so I know how I can provide the most value I can to my listeners. And if you have topics that you want to know more about, I'd love to hear those as well. So shoot me a message on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It's at the Hope Pedraza, or visit my website, hopefulandwholesome.com. Thanks y'all.